Do we have a new blood risk factor for cancer and diabetes? Associating long COVID symptoms with different variants of the virus. Should small asymptomatic kidney stones be removed if someone's already been identified with a stone? And strategies for treating atherosclerosis of the blood vessels to the brain following stroke. That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. But how about if we turn straight to, of course, in our way, this notion of, hmm, what kind of post-COVID syndromes might you have if you have a different variant of COVID, and that's in MedRxIV. This is a really interesting study conducted in the United Kingdom in which they tried to do a couple things. One is they tried to see whether there was an association of different long COVID symptoms and relate them to either people who were vaccinated or unvaccinated and the various variants of the COVID virus. The wild type, the alpha variant, and the delta variant. And they looked at the various symptoms in over 9,300 individuals. They were able to identify three common patterns. There was a central neurologic cluster associated with the alpha and delta variants cause things like brain fog and confusion. There was a second cluster. It's called a cardiorespiratory cluster. It was typically linked to, to more severe symptoms, such as severe shortness of breath, cardiac issues, lung problems associated primarily with the wild type variant. And then there was a systemic inflammatory cluster that often had immune-related symptoms. This transpired across all three different variants. These clusters weren't affected by the vaccination status of the individual. It didn't appear to alter the profile or the type of long COVID symptoms associated with these different ones. There's a paper that we're not discussing this week, but that just came out in The Lancet that looks at the risk of developing long COVID among quite a large cohort and establishes that as one in eight will end up with these long COVID symptoms. I guess I'm still struggling a little bit with all of this and what its clinical impact might be. It's not rare. What these authors hope to do by clustering these things is try to find some common etiologies or causes that would help direct prognostication, identification, or treatment. But I think we'll be talking about this more in the future. Unquestionably, we'll be talking about it more. Let's turn from here to the New England Journal of Medicine. And this is a study that addresses this very common condition that's kidney stones. It looks at whether when somebody has a symptomatic kidney stone that's being treated, if oops, while you're at it, should we take a look at other small stones, those that are smaller than six millimeters, but that are asymptomatic, should we also attempt to remove those? What does that do in terms of recurrence? They did a multi-center randomized controlled trial. However, in that trial, they only got 38 patients in their treatment group and 35 patients in their control group. They looked at endoscopic removal of stones in the ureters or contralateral kidney stones. They remaining small asymptomatic stones, again, were removed in 38 of these patients. And then they followed up these folks for a mean time period of 4.2 years. They were able to show that the time to relapse was 75% longer in the treatment group than in the control group. The risk of relapse was 82% lower in the treatment group than the control group. They also looked at 
the financial aspects of this, and they determined that it was actually less expensive to go ahead and treat these asymptomatic stones than it was to let this person go on and then get symptomatic later. The editorialist makes the argument that this is, okay, probably a good idea to go ahead and do this, although they did note that only one-fourth of the patients in both groups were prescribed preventive medications to try to assist with this recurrence risk. Yeah, Elizabeth, as you said, this is an interesting study because if you've had kidney stones and they've been treated, there's about a 50% chance that you'll have a relapse within the next four to five years. As you said, these were individuals that were already going to be treated for kidney stones. It comes on the fact that the treatment's gotten really much better. The urologists who do this have newer techniques, newer equipment. It's overall a very safe procedure. Now, the real question is, okay, what about individuals that aren't having a symptomatic kidney stone? Should we be doing something for their asymptomatic stones? But if a person's having treatment for symptomatic kidney stones, the urologist should at least consider removing the smaller ones that are asymptomatic in the same patient. Right. And I also wonder, though, in this extremely common problem, whether screening would be appropriate in people who've already had an issue. And then finally, the editorialist makes the statement that an alternative to preemptive surgical intervention would be to figure out how to make small stones detach and pass spontaneously. You're right. So the options are medications to decrease the formation of new stones or dislodgement of one. Secondly, is trying to dislodge them and keep them asymptomatic. That sounds like a pretty noble but difficult goal. Or the third is to remove them at the time of a procedure. There are millions of individuals that already have symptomatic kidney stones. Removing the additional stones only takes about 25 minutes longer. What about this idea of screening? What do you think of that? I'd only screen if we're going to do something about it. Do you treat their stones? That's really what a study should address. And in that case, if it's proven to be beneficial, then screening should be pursued. Let's move on to your next one. That's in JAMA. And and actually, there were quite a few of them. So Elizabeth, we're going to talk about two studies together. And both of these are treatment strategies for people that have intracranial atherosclerosis, blockage in the blood vessels in the brain that cause stroke. And approximately 12% of white patients with a history of an acute ischemic stroke, or what's called a transient ischemic attack, have some form of intracranial atherosclerosis. And if you actually look at people under the age of 55, about one third of them have intracranial atherosclerosis. So at the time of stroke, how do you best treat it to minimize neurologic dysfunction and to reduce the risk that there'll be a recurrent stroke? Removing the thrombus or the clot that's causing the stroke is one of the most effective therapies. Can we combine additional therapies to that to make it even more effective? One of which is to use more intensive antiplatelet agents that would potentially reduce the risk of recurrent stroke. In one of the studies, they did that. Patients underwent thrombectomy. They removed the clot. They received aspirin and then half received a very potent antiplatelet agent called tyrofaban intravenous for 20 hours after the procedure. Unfortunately, what happened was it didn't really improve the neurologic deficit, but it did increase the risk of bleeding inside the brain. The second study looked at, okay, what about afterwards? after you've done the thrombectomy, either doing a balloon angioplasty or a stent where there was a blockage there. So they took 358 patients that had a stroke, they did the thrombectomy, they waited for three weeks to 12 months afterwards, and then randomized them to either put in a stent in a balloon or just continue medical therapy. What they found out was that was not the case. The addition of stenting or balloon angioplasty didn't reduce that risk at all. In fact, it increased it slightly initially. And even over the course of years, there was no improvement in survival. 
Now, that's partly, Elizabeth, because our medical therapy is so good now. We use intensive statin therapy and aspirin therapy, and we lower their blood pressure. In that setting, the risk of recurrent stroke was really pretty low, about 7% over the course of a year. And the overall mortality at three years in the medical group, 1.3%. Yeah, and I wouldn't be me without saying, I think we even need to go further back than that and let's prevent any of these events to begin with and not have to institute all of this by paying really careful attention to everything, blood pressure, sodium, and so forth, so that we can avoid the whole problem for most well, people. And Lizzie, we know the risk factors, diabetes, cigarette smoking, high blood pressure that's not treated. And then there's a genetic component as well. The average age of these individuals is only 56 years old. And you're right, preventing stroke is really much more effective than treating stroke. And since we're talking about, you already mentioned a risk factor for that diabetes, then let's turn to diabetologia. This is a look at a novel risk marker for diabetes and cancer mortality. And this is called plasma prostasin. I hadn't heard of this before. Had you? No, it's news to me. This was a study that was conducted in the Malmo Diet and Cancer Study Cardiovascular Cohort. That's in Sweden. They had in this particular study, 4,600 plus participants, and they excluded a few of those folks because they didn't have sufficient data for all of them. What they were looking at was this blood marker, prostasin, and blood glucose levels and other covariants. This marker, interestingly, is associated with epithelial sodium channels. There's a relationship there between those sodium channels and ultimately with diabetes and this cancer risk. They followed them up for quite a while, 22 years, more or less. During that time, several of these people developed diabetes and also died from cancer. They were able to show that prostasin was significantly associated with the incidence of diabetes and with cancer, especially strong association in individuals with impaired fasting blood glucose levels at baseline. They're suggesting that this might be a marker that we could start paying attention to. Studies like this I find are fascinating, but I'm going to talk about the limitations. There was a single measurement of prostasin in these individuals. You want to follow this over a long period of time. For example, we don't even know if prostasin levels fluctuate in the normal population. Whenever you see these, you ask yourself, is there an association at all? And secondly, is it causal or not? Is this a marker or not? Is it a byproduct? Is it related or not? These are all things that need to be identified. Interesting hypothesis, a lot more to be done. I would finally note, however, that we have talked a lot, and I've talked a lot, it seems like, about this relationship between diabetes and different kinds of cancers. And so I think trying to find a smoking gun in here is something that I'm really very interested in. Yeah, and, and that's an association many of our listeners not be aware of. It's clear that diabetes is associated with an increased risk of cancer, and there's no question about that. More to come, no doubt. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.